Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to Planetial's podcast, Future Rich. My name is Barbara Ginty. I am your host, and I'm also a CFP, which hopefully all of our loyal listeners know by now that stands for a Certified Financial Planner. And today we have a really wonderful expert episode, um, and I will allow her to introduce herself, but we're going to be talking about a topic that doesn't get talked about that often, but I'm very excited to talk about it, divorce. So hi, Michelle. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. Um, my name is Michelle Dordick. I work at a family law firm in California called Wasser, Cooperman, and Mandels. Um, we handle all sorts of family issues, primarily high-income divorces, post-judgment issues, prenups, etc. Perfect. Well, that's what we <laughs> want to know about. <laughs> So we have had we have asked our listeners to submit questions. So Michelle has a ton of questions that we um, that we have prepared to go over. But just a little bit about yourself, Michelle. How did you end up wanting to go into family law? Actually, I mean, I hate to say it, but I definitely was one of those people that it kind of fell into my lap. My family, my my dad's a lawyer. My brother was going to law school at the same time. My sister, we knew she was going to go to law school. So it was it was sort of not. Um, it wasn't really that big of a leap for me to go from undergrad to law school. Also, a lot of my friends were taking the LSAT at the same time. Um, and I sort of, I didn't really know if I wanted to be a lawyer. I just knew the opportunity was there. The door was open and I could always drop out and I ended up liking it. And I don't know, I had some friends around me who had some family law issues. My, my one friend, um, was engaged and her fiance three weeks before the wedding actually served her with a prenup that was very unfair. Oh, and wow. I just, I know. And I just thought the whole situation, the whole, I mean, it sucked for her, but for me, it was so interesting. And it sort of like was another door that opened because I hadn't seriously considered family law until then. Um, and then after that, I immediately enrolled in a bunch of family law classes and <laughs> tested it out. And it really just, it worked. And I have a, I was a, um, a psychology major, so I was always been interested in people's relationships and stuff like that. So it really all my interests aligned. So when I say it fell into my lap, it kind of all the all the roads path of, exactly. Oh, that's really interesting. What happened with your friend? They um, she is single, okay. <laughs> so that did not work out. And was the prenup? So the prenup basically was not in her. So can can you give us like a little? You know, I, at the time I really wasn't involved in family law, so I didn't know what it said. Um, I just know that her lawyer said to her, run. And you know, when your lawyer is saying to you, don't get married, run. I mean, they're not even getting the fees from trying to negotiate the prenup. They're basically just saying, leave the guy. Yeah. Oh my Um, God. So you know that they really mean it. Um, and I, I, you know, he had a business that he was trying to protect. He also had some family, like his his brothers and sisters, I don't know, he had some sort of weird relationship with them that he was trying to protect them. And, and it wasn't just that the terms of the prenup were bad, but after 
they, after she got the prenup and all those issues started to come up, a lot of other personal issues in his life started to come out that she didn't know about, which. So that opened the door for other things. It did open the door for other things. And I think it's, it's actually interesting because that's sort of the, the benefit of a prenup. I think one of the big things about prenups that it makes you talk about a lot of really difficult issues that might come up later in your relationship. I know we'll probably get into prenups later, but. No, um, we can just start with it because it is something that I personally am interested in. I think a lot of our listeners, um, cause we run the gamut of listeners being, you know, in relationships or married versus single. Um, and as a, as a single woman in my thirties, I would, I think I would have to have a prenup because I've built out my net worth on my own for so many years. I wouldn't, I would want to protect what I did as an individual. I think it would be different if you got married and you both had nothing and came into the marriage versus if you come into the marriage and, you know, you own two businesses and have a net worth and everything like that. Well, so here, here's why I think a prenup is important. So first of all, you know, a lot of people say to me, how do you avoid getting divorced? Or what do you see as being the biggest pitfall in a marriage? And as cliche as it may be, I think the biggest way to avoid a bad relationship is to have good communication, but particularly when it comes to finances, because what you're really doing is you're entering into a business deal. That's what a marriage is. This is music to my ears because I love that. I didn't, I just so the listeners know, I did not prep you to say that but <laughs> conversations are important in relationships, but I obviously agree. Oh yeah. So, and, and they're hard. That's, that's they're, yeah, uncomfortable. Hard. They're very uncomfortable when you're in, you know, the highs of being engaged and planning a wedding. The last thing you want to do is say, is sit down and say, so what are we going to do with our bank account? You know, yeah, and like, how do you feel about paying down debt versus saving versus exactly? I mean, you have to plan for those kinds of things. And so a prenup is sort of a surefire way to have that conversation because the point of a prenup is to put those kinds of things into a contract. And so, so both people come into this relationship with sort of a plan of their life, you know, like for instance, I'm a lawyer, so I would love to work at this firm for many, many years, maybe make my way up to partner and have some sort of stake in the business. And I have this idea of how my finances are going to go. And the person that I'm marrying probably has some sort of idea too. So it's not completely blind. It's just, you have to have a conversation of how you're going to merge those two ideas and a prenup is a way to do that. It doesn't mean you have to have a prenup. It just means that I think it's important to have that conversation. And so in the for the in the example of my friend where all of a sudden these weird things started coming out of the woodwork when the prenup came about, it's a perfect example of how those things would have come up and come out of the woodwork later at some point in the relationship had it yeah, not come up at the time of the prenup. No, that makes sense. It kind of forces you to have the conversation. Right. It forces you to have that conversation and to really plan and to talk about difficult things, you know, and, and make, you know, try and figure out, can we have this conversation ever now or in the future? And if the answer is no, then maybe you need to rethink the relationship you're getting into. Right. Cause you're right. It is like a business, right? You're going to have, you're going to have to make decisions about money. There are going to be effects of that. And it's a legal decision to get married. 100%. I mean, you're literally entering into a contract and get out of it is, which we'll get into is expensive and time consuming and hard. So definitely easier to get married than it is to get divorced. (laughs) (laughs) That is true. And the really interesting thing, and I never knew this, but I had a, 
uh, a botched uh, engagement um, is it takes two people to get married, right? You both have to agree to mm-hmm. get married and both people have to show up for it. It only takes one person for a divorce to happen. Correct. I mean, it's Which I never, I never knew that. I, my assumption, because my parents have been married forever. My grandparents, both sets have been married. Well, they're deceased, but were married for like 60 plus years. So I just assumed if you married the person that they would show up to make the marriage work. But that is not, not true. It's not them. true. And, you know, the policy behind that is to protect someone who is in a really, really bad marriage. Mm-hmm. They don't want to force you to stay together. And I, if I'm remembering my law school education accurately it wasn't always like that you know mm. a long, long time ago I, I think you did or at least in some states you did both have to show up to get divorced interesting um, now you only need one person yeah yeah the, the protection that makes sense so your take on a prenup is it at least having those types of conversation is a good idea before getting married whether or not you go through with having a legal contract exactly and you know Getting back to what you were saying about people who are much younger and they may not have that much to put into a prenup, you also have to think about, you know, the future. So, for example, I'm an attorney. I will likely have, I mean, my goal is to have some sort of partnership interest or a doctor who might have some interest in a practice. And you're talking about these businesses are assets. And you may want to, and in California, those assets are divisible. And that person, that you're marrying has a 50% interest in that partnership or in that practice. And if you think that you're in a position where you might get some sort of, you know, stake in a business and you want that to be yours and you both agree that that should be yours, or you agree to some sort of terms about that, then that's something you'd want to put into a prenup. Right. Because otherwise, and tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like people haven't heard worst case scenarios. And as a financial advisor, I hear the worst case scenarios, right? And, and you as an attorney see worst case scenarios as well. But it is possible that you get married at a young age and you're, we'll just use an attorney as an example, and you become a partner at a law firm and you're the one that went to law school. You're the one that took out the loans to do it. You were the one that put the effort in to do it. And then 10 years into the marriage, maybe your husband leaves you for another person. You would still have to pay them out of the law partnership that you earned by yourself. Exactly. Or some sort of equalization payment. And the idea behind it is that even though you were the one who went to law school and you were the one who made all these, you know, professional strides, the, your partner was there supporting you. And so in California, they say, you know what, your partner was there supporting you. So they have an interest in it because had your partner not been there, you may have not gotten there. Right. So, you know, there is an equity aspect to it. And when you're in family law, you're really talking about a court of equity. Um, and it makes perfect. I mean, for I mean, obviously, I'm I'm in the field. It makes perfect sense to me. I think about this stuff all the time. But for somebody who worked really damn hard to get there, you know, that can be a shocking moment when you find out that they have an interest in something you built essentially on your own. Right, and that you could be liable for taking. Because what I've seen is clients having to take out a loan to pay off the spouse, and it was the spouse's idea to leave the marriage. Mm-hmm. It yeah. was something they didn't want. And then not only are they going through this emotional turmoil of losing the marriage that they wanted, but now they also are going through the financial turmoil of having to buy out the person that left the marriage. Right. I mean, they're literally breaking up their partnership, like their business partnership that they're that they entered into. So it's an emotional breakup and also a literal business breakup. Yeah, which is interesting because I don't think a lot of people look at it that way. 
I don't think so either. <laughs> and, I don't, and I don't think a lot of people talk about the horror stories. Like I didn't, I shared on like one of our last podcasts that I was engaged and it didn't end well. And it was like a bit of a shock to me um, when it did end. And people don't talk about that sort of stuff. Like no one really like at a dinner party says, oh yeah, I was engaged and he left. So I feel like you don't hear the worst case scenarios unless you're a professional in the field or you just don't hear them as often. People don't like to put that stuff out there. Right. And also, I mean, it sounds and it feels a lot harder to break up uh, a, an engagement than it is to divorce, to get divorced in your marriage, because in engagement, there's a lot of hype and everybody's watching you and yeah. everybody's excited for you. So you don't want to let people down. Mm-hmm. But the effect of getting of breaking up when you're engaged is so much easier and, you know, quicker and simpler than when you actually get married and you are linked in this weird financial legal way. And then you have to. Yeah, I can't. So, so I made the mistake of, we were domestic partners because we were in New York, New York city, which was like a legal document, but just recognized by New York city. And we had also started a business together Mm. and we were buying a house together. So we had, so it took, I think it took us, well, me, cause he did nothing. Um, because he was the one who walked away. So he wanted nothing to do with unraveling it. I think it took me six or eight months to unravel everything. Oh no, actually over a year because we had to file a, 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 another tax return together, our final tax return. Right. And then you you think that entering into a domestic partnership is no big deal, easier, <laughs> but no. Mm-hmm. I mean, breaking up a domestic partnership is the same, mm-hmm. the exact same process of, as getting a divorce. Yes, they're very they're very similar. And ending a business partnership is similar, I think, with getting the divorce because you have to do the final tax return and you have to dismantle the assets and then figure out who owes what. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I can only imagine with my little bit of experience what it's like if you go into a marriage and you're in it for a longer period of time about how complicated it can be to end it. So what what have you seen with how long, like if you're in a marriage and it's not working out, how long does it take to get divorced? What have you seen? So in California, the there's a statutory waiting period of six months from the day that you file. Oh, wow. So no matter what, you're at least waiting six months to get divorced but it can take as long as years and years, depending on if you're having difficulty reaching an agreement, um, if you're pushing out, you know, hearing dates in the court. I mean, we've, we've had, we have cases that are five years now. That is terrible. And then how does it, so with California, your community property state, so that just means that everything is 50, 50, is that correct? It means that anything earned during marriage or after you get married and anything purchased with after married income mm-hmm. is community property. Okay. And that's, you each have a 50% interest in community property. But let's say you were living in California and inherited money from your mother who passed away and you kept that separate, never commingled a dollar. That would be your own asset. Correct. Inherit, there are, so there are exceptions to the community property rule, which are inheritance, gifts, and um, like bequests. Okay. So none of those, all of those things remain separate property. And um, whether you received it during the marriage, before marriage, after marriage, doesn't matter. Got it. Okay. Now, if you're a non-community property state, which might not be your wheelhouse, um, is there a way that, is there another way they figure it to do it? Is it just more of a, like a negotiation at that point? I, you know, I'm not 
I, I don't practice in a state that's not community property, so I can't really say. Yeah, that's no problem. Yeah, I can really only speak to community. All right, we'll take that part out. I'm writing this down. <laughs> um, so is there is sometimes I hear about people staying together just for the like they're married, but they're not really married, but they're just staying together. So couples do that to avoid the cost of divorce and the time. Is that do you see that ever happen? I, I do see that happen sometimes, and I think it's kind of silly because you're talking about I mean, first of all, it has an emotional toll. And second of all, you're still, I mean, as long as you're together and holding yourselves out as a couple and you're not separated, everything that you're earning and buying is still community property. You haven't stopped the clock on it, on the business. Exactly. You're, you haven't stopped the clock until you've separated. And then once you've separated, yes, getting a divorce is expensive, but if you're amicable and you, know, you don't technically, there's nothing, there's no part of a divorce that you absolutely need an attorney for. Everything can be done on your own. You can go to the courthouse, file the paperwork and get it done. The attorneys come in when you're having a difficult time agreeing or when you're having, you know, when you have really complicated issues that you just don't have the time or capacity to handle. So when a couple is, when they've agreed that they're not okay in their relationship and they're not happy, at that point, it sounds like, I mean, they're agreeing. Mm -hmm. So that's the first step. Right. And continue to agree, then it doesn't have to be that expensive. And staying together, I think, is only hurting you and potentially hurting the family around you if you're not getting along. Right. Absolutely. And then, and then there can be those financial implications. Mm-hmm. So what if you got married in a non-community state and then moved to, let's say, California? You would then fall under the community property rules. Yes. So California law will apply to the divorce. You can get married wherever you want. But when you're when you're talking, <laughs> we'll get married in any state. But if you get divorced in California, <laughs> but if you live in there's a there's a residency requirement. I think okay. you both have to live here for at least six months. But but the effect on your assets and your income and your debt and all of you know the property division stuff and the the support stuff and the child related issues, you know, custody, etc. California will apply the rules if you're getting divorced in California. Okay. Even if you own property in other states. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So it does it does matter where you, it really matters less where you get married and more where you get divorced. Exactly. Okay. So we have a couple of questions from our listeners. So let me know if these are things that you can answer. So one of them is if only one person paid for the house, but puts the spouse's name on the deed or title, what happens in the divorce? Okay. So when you're talking about real property, which is what a house is, it's real property. It's first important to sort of look at real property as, as its own thing. There are two main issues when it comes to property. First of all, the down payment. Mm -hmm. And then second of all, the money that went into the equity of the home. So usually, you know, the principal paid on the mortgage. Okay. Those two aspects of real property you're really looking at the source of the funds. So for instance, if you are married and you have a joint bank account, all of your income since you've been married has gone into this joint bank account and you use the money from the joint bank account to pay the down payment, then the down payment on the house is community property. And then if you use the community, the community funds from that account to pay the mortgage, the entire house is community property. And then it's easy. You 
you split it half and half. It doesn't really matter whose name is on the deed because the house itself is community property. Okay. Unless the exception is if there's a transmutation, which means that there's some sort of written document to prove that one person wanted to give up their entire interest to somebody else. So in the example where the house is completely community property, let's say wife wants to transmute her interest to husband, her community property interest to husband. Mm-hmm. She has to, it has to be in a, a written form. So a written document expressing there are all these, you know, there's, there are a lot of like transmutations are really complicated okay. um, to prove. And so there are, there are a lot of magic words that have to happen and it's still an ongoing issue in the court about what the words have to be. But essentially what you're doing is you're expressing your intent in the document to give your entire interest to this other person. And then it has to be signed by the person who's giving up the interest. Okay. So in that case, sometimes a deed is arguably a transmutation. And in that case, if one person's name is on the deed and you can prove that the other person intended and signed and did all the right things Thanks. to make the deed a transmutation, then the house that once was community property originally is now separate property. Interesting. Okay. And so the deed really doesn't become important until, unless you're trying to argue that the deed proves otherwise. But first you look at whether the house is community property or separate property. And what can also happen is if you buy the house, for example, if wife wants to buy the house before they get married. And so wife puts her separate property, she uses her separate property for the down payment, Mm -hmm. but then they get married and the mortgage is paid with community property. Then what you have is sort of a mixed bag under, you know, community property in California law, um, wife would be entitled to some sort of maybe reimbursement or credit for the down payment that she paid because it remains separate property. Okay. So she gets that back if they get divorced. Interesting. And then the house that's community property and any growth on the house is community property. Perfect. Well, and so we have, we had a case with our, one of our clients where she inherited a house for her family and decided to, I think in New York, and I'm not an attorney, so just take everything I'm saying with a grain of salt. This is just a scenario. Um, But I think in New York, it's also true that if you don't commingle, it is on a marital asset. So she inherited the house from family, right? So she didn't have to pay, didn't have a mortgage, and then um, got married. Her husband moved in to her house that was gift, you know, an inheritance from family. And she added him to, I believe it was the deed or the title or something, but added him on to it. He then fast forward 10 years later, um, the way it worked from our client's perspective was she was the diligent one putting money away in retirement. And he was the one spending all of, I think he spent all of his money on like motorcycles and stuff, but you know, very, very different financial lifestyles, if you will. So fast forward, and I forget how long they were married, but we'll just say 10 years. And then he decided, you know, he was done with being married and didn't want it anymore. But because she had added him to the house, which was had been paid off at that time, she had to buy him out of the house because it was now co it had been commingled at that point. And this is in New York, not in California. And so she had to take a mortgage out to buy her ex-husband out of the house that she inherited. Okay. So this is actually a much better example than what I was trying to tell you earlier. <laughs> because because the house itself, down payment or not down payment, the entire thing is her separate property. Yeah. From the beginning, because she inherited, inherited. it. Inherited. Yep. So the question, and then he moves in. Yeah. I think he added him. I don't know the exact scenario because she was a client 
a long, long time ago before I bought the business, but I know the story of her. And so I guess she added him to the deed or the title and they continued to live there for a number of years until he decided, and it was his idea. He ended, he said, I didn't want to be married anymore. He was moving. He was going to end the marriage. I don't think he moved out. I think that was the key. I think he stayed in the house while they're going through this divorce proceeding. And it turned out that she ended up having to take a mortgage out on a house that she had free and clear prior to the marriage because it now was considered co-mingled and it wasn't mm-hmm. separate asset anymore. It wasn't a separate, was, wasn't outside of the marriage. And she, she had to take out a mortgage to buy her net, you know, future ex-husband out of the house she had inherited. So in California, the fact that he lived in the house and the fact that they put his name on the deed is not as persuasive unless you can prove that her putting on the deed was what we were saying before was a transmutation mm-hmm. and that she did that intentionally to give him an interest in the, the house. house. But but there are a lot of other reasons why people need to put another person on deeds. Right. And so that's why a deed alone is not is not per se considered a transmutation. You have to think about the intention and if the intention was expressed and if the person who gave up the interest signed the document, which deeds are not always signed yep. by the person exactly. giving up the interest. So in California, unless the point of putting him on the deed was to give him an interest in it, then the house would still be hers. But th- then the next question would be in this scenario, the growth on the house. Yeah, what happens with that, right? So the, so, so the interesting thing I think would be because everything obviously varies by state, is that like anything I think that you're dealing with when you're dealing with a legality or something that has a legal ramification, I really always think it's worth paying an attorney for your advice to be like, if I do this, how does this work in the future? Exactly. And you're talking about, I mean, a one hour consultation. Yeah, exactly. People seem to not realize that you can hire, you can hire an attorney, a CPA or a CFP for an hour of their time and you will pay them because for all professionals like that, we get paid for our mind. So you will pay them a good fee, but it's much cheaper to pay someone upfront and get the professional opinion than to do it on your own after reading an article online and then hope that it was the right decision. Exactly. I mean, I, I couldn't have said it better. I mean, there are so many issues that people just, they come into the office and their their mind is blown because they had no idea going into anything that this would happen. And and look, sometimes, you know, some, it, it, you're talking about the way people live their lives, mm-hmm. you know, and no one's thinking while they're living their life, you know, what's going to happen if it all comes crumbling right down, and, down and nobody wants to think about that. <laughs> exactly. But you, you do want to think about what it means to be entering into whatever it is, whatever. So you're, yeah, exactly. So if you're going to buy a house and you know, you want to know what it means to buy a house. And if you don't know, then you should ask somebody. Absolutely. And you know what? Go in with your spouse, hear it from like, hear it together. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. So if there's, if the house grows, increases in value. And you can prove that the increased value was due to some sort of community efforts. So when husband moved in, if he um, redid the kitchen, if he paid his separate property money to redo the kitchen or paid community property to redo the kitchen um, or, you know, built a second story, the increased value of the property due to those kinds of community efforts, that's community property. Oh, interesting. So okay. he would be entitled to 50% of the value of whatever that increased value is. And I think that's really important to know too, because a lot of people just do work on their homes. I mean, look, in, Cal- 
this couple, it, it sounds like in New York, the law was very different, but in California, you know, it, before the growth issue even comes up, it's very clear that it's separate property. Yep. And then, yeah, the growth, maybe he was doing work on the house for those 10 years and that's why it was D because I don't know, I, you know, I wasn't the lawyer for the case and I'm not a lawyer. Um, right. But yeah, no, it's really interesting. And the reason I think the house part is so important is because it's usually one of the largest assets when getting divorced. Yeah, yeah, and definitely one of the most emotional assets. Right, because a lot of people after divorce have to sell their primary residence. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, mom wants to live there with the kids and, it, you know, da- it's dad's separate property or whatever it is. And it's, it's a huge point of negotiation. Yeah, I, I, that's what I thought, too. I thought the house was usually on the top of the list. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the other thing to think about is if you're getting divorced, if the family assets, if, if both were contributing to the house, then both can only afford it together. And it can't always be afforded with just one person staying in the house. Right. That, that's a really good point, too. So a lot of families that they're having... I mean, you're talking about splitting. Now you're paying twice as much for something you guys were paying when you were living together. Yep, exactly. Where you were you know, 50%, so, now you have to pay 100 Right. So a lot of people end up having to sell their home. Yep. Yeah, because we see a lot of people, at least when they're going to get a, a primary residence, are doing it based on both incomes, which is totally normal. But then if you get divorced, you probably can't maintain that um, or maybe not as easily. Right. And then getting back to that, you know, earlier when we were talking about prenups and having an interest in your business, you know, a lot of people will have a business interest and a home. Mm -hmm. And then you're talking about, you know, wife, the attorney who also has this separate property home. And so what she'll do is often say, okay, I'll give you my interest in the home, but I keep my business. Yeah. Oh my man, this can get brutal. Yeah, I, mean, I would. I would have like hard time giving my stuff up. I'd be like, "No, this is mine." <laughs> yeah, all of a sudden, what what was our, ours is now mine. Yeah, exactly. I don't want to share it anymore. Um, and another big, I think, besides the house and business, another big thing is kids, right? Oh yeah. So I mean, he, he, you always ask, "Do you have kids? Do you not have kids?" I mean, it. it I'm sure that it changes everything. Changes a lot, and it adds a lot. So one of the questions from our listeners is like a two-part question. So she said that she's been, it's been four years since she's been divorced. They left the alimony slash child support open. And so for our listeners, alimony is where you get paid a spousal support. Um, And child support is where you get paid money for for the children. And she said, is it too late to file for it since it's been four years from the divorce? We're talking about two separate issues. Okay. Child-related issues, so when you're talking about child custody and child support, the court retains jurisdiction until the child either ages out or becomes emancipated. Oh. So no matter what, whether you're in the post-judgment phase or you know, you're still going through your actual divorce and you haven't actually reached a judgment, the judge always has jurisdiction to hear those issues. Alimony is a little bit different because alimony, you can contract away, you can waive alimony. So for it's alimony is actually something that um, is is a big incentive for people to have prenups because you can waive your spousal support in your prenup. Oh, okay. So not only can you waive your spousal support in your prenup, so if, if you had done that four years out, you wouldn't then be able to ask for alimony. The issue would be closed. If also you have a judgment that has alimony decided in the judgment and then you're in the post-judgment phase, if the alimony in your judgment is considered 
non-modifiable. So if you've decided, or if the court has decided that your alimony is not modifiable, then it's it's literally not modifiable even four years later. You can't change. But not all alimony is non-modifiable. So if you're in, if your judgment says nothing, or if it says it is modifiable, then four years later, it doesn't matter. You can come in to the court and ask for a modification. But if there's nothing about alimony, okay, so if you haven't entered into a judgment and you're you're still going back and forth about your divorcing, you don't have anything final, then the issue of alimony is still on the table. Interesting. Okay. So even if it's been four years, if it hasn't said- even if it's been four years. Okay. So then, I mean, you're, it's really, it's really a question of, are you in, in the divorce stage or are you in the post-judgment stage? If you're in the divorce stage, there's, there's no time limit. You're still trying to handle all of the issues. So four years later, eight years later, one year later, if alimony is still an open issue, then it's still an open issue. But if you've decided alimony and then you're in the post-judgment stage, then it really depends on what the judgment says. So they would just have to go back and look at their judgment. And if it's not addressed, then maybe they have an opportunity to go in and, and try and refile for it. Right. Then what about this one? This is, seems like a trick question. And I could see someone ending up in this position, which is I have no money, um, but I need my ex to now pay child support. How do I get a lawyer if I'm unable to afford one? I have no idea how to address that. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, I know in LA, the LA courthouse has a self-help center that is really helpful, especially when you're talking about enforcing a judgment that's already been ordered. So child support is something that it sounds like would have already been ordered yeah, and they're just not paying it. So if I were this person, I would go to the self-help desk at the LA courthouse, show them the judgment and say, they haven't been paying, please help me. And they'll give you the paperwork that you need to fill out. And they'll basically give you the steps to do that. My boss, Laura Wasser, also has started this business called It's Over Easy. And it's actually um, another tool that people can use to a more economical tool that people can use. It actually doesn't help in post-judgment, but if somebody wants to get a divorce and you know they don't have the ability to afford an attorney in their divorce, they can use this online tool, It's Over Easy. And I'm sure that there are a lot of other resources when you're talking about enforcing the judgment, back to what your original question was. You know, there are a lot of, I don't, I don't know the names off the top of my head, but there are a lot of um, like pro bono programs that will help you, especially when you're talking about child support, because across the U.S. it's agreed that, that you basically child support is the utmost importance. <laughs> yeah. That if you were told to pay that, you have to pay. The government doesn't want to have to pay for your kids. Right. You can be jailed, right? They can arrest you for that. They can arrest you. They can take away your driver's license. I mean, it's a little bit backwards because they can do a lot of things that prevent you from getting a job to pay your child support. <laughs> I didn't think about it that way, but you're correct. Yeah. It's a huge issue because it's like, how do you incentivize somebody to pay for their child? For their child, how does the government, all the government can do is start taking privileges away. Right. You know, um, but you're right. That actually impacts the ability to make money to then pay the child support. Right. But I think at the end of the day, the government looks at it like, figure it out. You know, you have this responsibility. It's a judgment against you. There are also a lot of resources for you can levy someone's bank account. You know, you can do a lot of those um, creditor. Yeah, because you're then as the parent that's owed the child support, you are then a creditor. 
Exactly. So you can ask, you can also do a wage garnishment in certain circumstances where you're basically, you know, you file some paperwork and it becomes the employer's responsibility to take a certain amount of money out of the paycheck for child support. And that money goes to the government and the government distributes it to to the owed party. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Interesting. Um, so another question we got, and this is also relating to children, is how can you change joint custody to full custody after you've been divorced? And it sounds like Based on what you're saying, it just depends if it was a finalized judgment or not, or whether that was open to renegotiation. Well, so for child support, anything related to kids is always open for discussion. Oh, okay. Post judgment, pre judgment, no matter what, as long as the kid hasn't aged out or been emancipated. So while the kid is a minor, you can still go back to court and say, I have joint custody and I'm demanding full custody, and these are the reasons. Yes, but you're not going to get it unless you can prove a certain certain things. So one of the standards for modifying support or custody is a change of circumstance. So you have to show that there some the circumstances materially changed since the judgment was entered to warrant a modification. And then once you show that when you're talking about somebody asking for full custody, you have to show that full custody is then in the child's best interest. So to open up the discussion about child support or child custody, you have to show material change of circumstance. So you have to show that you lost your job or that the kid had, you know, the kid started a different school or um, some sort of change that has happened since the judgment was entered. And then once you open that conversation about, okay, there has been a material change of circumstances, now what should it be? Then the standard becomes what's in the child's best interest. And I can tell you that getting sole custody is very, very hard. Okay. The government thinks that it's really important for kids to have a relationship with both of their parents. Which I think make, makes sense. But yeah, I could see, depending on the, the relationship between the parents, where one parent might want it versus the other. Right. Now, once again, if you feel like you don't have the money for an attorney, is that something that you can do on your own or are there like pro bono or like resources? I would imagine there would be. Yeah. I mean, everything, you can do all of this alone. You can file any paperwork. You can open up any matter on your own. It's complicated and it's frustrating and because time a lot of people... <laughs> And time consuming. Exactly. So I always say, you know, you can do it on your own, but it's my full-time job. And usually these people already have full-time jobs. So they don't want to take on another. And that's why you get an attorney. But yeah, I would always say that if you can afford it, an attorney is in your best interest, just because it's what what we were saying before is that this is what you do. You're a professional and you do this every day, all day. So you'll help. But if you are in the unfortunate position where you're paycheck to paycheck and not getting by, I think that you should still feel like you can try and tackle this on your own. Yes. And you should, I mean, I 100% would recommend going to the self-help desk. I mean, it's a matter of filing paperwork and then you get in front of a judge and the judge is going to help you out. Right. They're going to hear what you have to say and they're going to do their best. Um, The other thing I want to say is if you don't have any money, but the other parent does, and the other parent can afford an attorney, but you can't, under the family code, you're in t- you're both entitled to representation. Oh. If the other side does have money and they can afford their own representation, the family code basically says that both parties to a divorce or 
post-judgment are entitled to equal access to legal representation. So if one person has the ability to afford an attorney and the other person needs help to afford an attorney, then the judge will order or the parties will agree that the moneyed party will contribute to the other person's attorney's fees. I'm not saying it will be 100%. It depends on, you know, the reasonableness mm-hmm. standard, you know, the, the, the golden phrase, reasonableness. <laughs> um, but, but not only does the code say that, but also attorneys know that. So if a client comes into our office and they say, my wife has nothing, but I need an attorney because she's suing me, we already know she's probably going to ask for fees. Right. <laughs> and we have a client that comes in and says, I have no money, but my wife, you know, is very well off, very successful, and I'm having these issues. We know we're going to ask for fees. And we know their attorney, if, you know, if they've been practicing for a day, will know to expect probably some sort of request. <laughs> So it's not it's not like a hidden secret in the code. It's something that happens all the time, and it's to the point is to even even the playing field. Yeah, that makes total sense. Exactly. And if you can't agree to it, so if we make a fee request to the other side and they're not, they're not agreeable, and we take the issue to the court, the court will order it. Right. And in order to level the playing field. Well, that's really interesting. So I've saved my favorite question for last because I feel like. I just appreciate whoever sent this in, who I don't know who sent this in. But the question was, if you have a secret account and your spouse finds out about it in divorce, can they be entitled to it? And I just want to preface this with, I just had a client and he called his wife, they're older and you know retired and his wife is very sick. And so he was trying to get the estate prepared in the event that anything should happen to her. And so he called me and I went over and I'm like, well, does she have like any other accounts that like aren't titled, meaning like that don't have a beneficiary? And he was like, you're not going to believe this, but my mother sat down my wife when we got married like 40 years ago and said to her, you always need to have your own account. I know you're marrying my son and I love my son, but you always need your own money. And the husband was just finding out about this 40 years later that she had this secret account for 40 years or what, however, I mean, they're in their like late 60s. And it was because his mother sat her down and was like, do not put every dollar with my son. You need that separate account just in case. So he, just, oh he was just finding out about it and he got his mother's deceased now, but he was like getting such a kick out of the fact that his mother sat down, his wife, right when they got married and he was like, you need this old, your own account. And it turns out that she listened to her mother-in-law and she had, and has had this separate account, uh, which was only in oh, her, it her, her next level. It didn't have to be secret. Yeah, it, it was secret. <laughs> she had the mother-in-law kind of requested that, <laughs> uh, which I just thought was hysterical that she kept it a secret now until they're like, you know, she's ill and try- they're trying to get kind of get things in order. And she's like, oh, by the by, your mother told me to keep this money separate from you. <laughs> Oh, well, okay. Because I just had this come up in my practice. So let's dissect it. And I'm sure as you can see, every like simple question, yeah, (laughs) simple question really needs to be dissected piece by piece. So when you're talking about a bank account, it goes back to what we were talking about with source of funds. If it's an account that she opened before they were married, and she put her earnings into it, the earnings that she you know, received before she was married. And then the account just sat there and she didn't really do anything to it. 
the money that went into it is separate property. And then the growth is separate property because it's growth on separate property money that was not touched. Right. So, so that would be separate property. If it's an account that she contributed community property funds to, then there's at least a portion of it that's community property. And then in the world of getting married, when we're talking about entering into this business contract, California says married people, just like business partners, owe each other the highest duty. And they call it the fiduciary duty. It's another buzzword. Yeah, that's a, such a buzzword, buzzword right now in our industry as well. Yes. So this fiduciary duty is like the utmost respect for one another. That's be, And it's it's the concept that like if you're making some sort of decision on behalf of the community, you have to treat the community like you are the community and like you're making the decision for yourself. So you can't just screw the other person out of, of money, you know, of, of money. Um, so if you are mismanaging your community property, so if you're hiding community property from the community and then it comes out that you purposefully hid it and you had all this, you know, stored cash in some offshore bank account, not only could the person be, not only could the other party be entitled to 50% of the community property interest, but the government, I mean, the government, the judge could award a hundred percent of that asset to the other party, sort of as a threat not to do it again. Right. Just it's a sentence. lesson. And this stuff happens. Like I had a friend who got divorced and her husband, who was an awful person. And I don't say that lightly. I don't, I think he would be the only person I think is awful. Um, he, they got, they got divorced or they were going through the separation process right after they had their first child. And she hired a private investigator because she just felt like something was off because all of a sudden now when they started the divorce proceedings, he apparently had no money. And she's like, that's impossible. He owns a business and they started it when, you know, they had first gotten married. And so it turned out that he secretly went and bought a lake house with his new girlfriend for like a crazy amount of money. And he was keeping that out. He wasn't just, he wasn't disclosing that in any of the paperwork. And that's where a lot of the assets had gone. So that's the other problem too is, I mean, look, in your first scenario, wife may have a secret bank account, but if she's disclosing it at the point of the divorce, it's not so secret. Yep. If she, so your, your duty as far as a spouse, you know, as far as being a spouse, you have a duty to sort of let the other person know what's going on to some degree. Yep. You're um, supposed to be hours. Yeah. Yeah, buying a house for your girlfriend on the side is obviously violating your fiduciary duty. Yeah. Because you're being shady in your marriage. I mean, if you're going to be shady, it's not okay. No. <laughs> so, I guess for our listeners, I think the biggest takeaway is that obviously when you're dealing with the law, there's no black and white answer. It all depends on a bunch of variables. And also that you should really think about marriage as a business. And there are ramifications to it and that discussing kind of how you're going to handle the finances of your business, which is, you know, the income and assets and debt that are being brought in um, should ideally be brought up before you get married and into it and kind of how each of you would want to handle everything. And whether or not that goes into a prenup or not, I think will depend on your, on your own scenario. And once again, 
This podcast is for entertainment purposes, and while this is a real conversation between a CFP and an attorney, you should always seek your own counsel, um, your own legal counsel and your own financial counsel. But I just think it's really interesting to kind of hear your perspective on it. Well, thank you for having me. This was really fun. I'll come back anytime with any other questions. Okay, wonderful. I'm sure we will get lots more questions from our listeners. So... This is great. And then we'll post in the show notes about uh, where your law firm is. If any of our, hopefully none of our listeners are getting divorced, but if you are getting divorced and in California, we will list your law firm and also the site that, um, it, what was it? Easy? It's over easy. It's over easy. Which is really funny because it's like the egg thing, but like yeah. divorce over quickly. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so we'll post that too for our California listeners. And for everyone else, um, please rate and review us on iTunes. And if you want to learn more about personal finance, you can take our class at www.planancial.com. And by the time this show airs, we will be starting our waitlist to be a 2020 guest. So if you are interested in coming on the show, we are already booked up for the rest of 2019, but you can be added to the waitlist for 2020 and we will start recording at the end of 2019. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.